I am co-host Amy Kluber, Managing Editor of Government CIO Media and Research. And I'm co-host Amanda Ziede, Senior Reporter with Government CIO Media and Research. Welcome to Season 2. Hello and welcome to GovCast. Today I'm joined by Charles Worthington, the Chief Technology Officer of the Department of Veteran Affairs. Thank you so much for joining us today, Charles. Thanks for having me. All right. So I want to start by asking you a bit about your background. When did you join government? How long have you been in a government position? I joined in 2013 as a part of the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program. Uh, I was in the second class of fellows in that program, uh, which was started up, uh, I guess, about a year before I joined. All right. What were you doing before? Uh, So right before that, I was doing a mix of uh, consulting for companies doing product design and software development work and uh, and also working on my own product. Um, I had a little startup idea at the time and uh, was sort of working on that stuff. So something I've I've realized out of all these interviews in GovCast is people generally did not go to school for anything technology related, but somehow end up in these awesome yeah. IT-related positions in government. So did you go to school for anything tech-related? No, I majored in social studies, uh, which was probably a class you took in like eighth grade. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that was my major. And uh, my focus was on international relations and environmental policy, actually. Uh, but I'd always been really interested in technology and uh, sort of on the side uh, took classes and in that actually did a really cool class. Uh, probably the most technical class I wound up taking in college was an art class. It was interactive art. Uh, and so wound up programming this interactive art display. Um, so it was always an interest of mine. Uh, and I think, you know, that came from growing up in a house where computers were everywhere. My mom was uh, was a software engineer. And oh, wow. uh, so, yeah. That's cool. So you had all of that. You were exposed to that pretty young then. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's kind of funny. My um, my mom is a software engineer who wound up starting her own software consulting, you know, small software consulting business in Minneapolis. Uh, and my dad worked for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So Interesting. it's kind of strange how it's kind of worked out that I'm now like this weird hybrid of both right. of them. <laughs> Did you ever work with her in, in that company? Is that where you got... Uh, no, I mean, you know, helping them just do random tasks at mm-hmm. the office. She would take us there sometimes on the weekends while she was working. We'd like stuff envelopes or, uh, you know, back in those days, it was mailing floppy disks around and CDs. And mm-hmm. so, but just was exposed to uh, to technology from a young age. Uh, I remember when we got our first Mac uh, uh, playing uh, playing all these different games on the, on the Mac and the compacts. And so, um, you know, seeing that from an early age, I think, gave me a lot of interest in it. So you left with a social studies degree from Harvard, which is an all right school. What did you, how did you from there get into this field? My first job out of college was doing strategy consulting uh, for technology and telecom companies. Uh, So sort of Verizon, Comcast, Microsoft, those types of companies. And a lot of strategy and management consulting winds up being uh, sort of thinking a lot about these new and cool emerging technologies and how they're going to impact and you know disrupt a lot of these bigger established companies. And so after doing that for about five years, you know it uh, it got to be where I was a little bit sick of kind of doing analyses and writing cool slides about these disruptive uh, sounding product ideas and wanted to actually work on the the products themselves. Mm-hmm. So I left uh, strategy consulting and sort of went back to um, my my passion, which had been kind of building stuff uh, and kind of relearned the modern uh, way of building web applications, web and mobile applications, and spent a couple of years doing that. Um, and meanwhile, my uh, my family, we moved to D.C. Uh, because my wife got a job out here. So 
we had moved to DC and I heard about this innovation fellows program and figured, you know, I'm in DC. Why anyway, why not, why not give this a try? And so mm-hmm. never expected that I would still be in government now, I guess, six years later, but, uh, it was a good time to join the government as a technologist uh, because there was so much interest in changing mm-hmm. uh, the way the government buys and builds technology at that time. Yeah, so that was kind of your call to government was coming to DC. So it wasn't it wasn't the opposite. We tend to hear people came to DC for a government job. Yeah, that's right. I was here, um, and most of my clients were back on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. We had moved from the the Bay Area most directly, and. Um, you know, I was here anyway, so it had started to get into the the tech startup scene here, and I had started to work on my own product, um, but heard about this program, so applied for it, and then heard that I had gotten uh, an offer to join, and decided, you know, for a year that would be a cool thing to do. And so for a so, year, <laughs> yeah, and here I am. How have you seen technology and government evolve for those six years? Oh, that's interesting. So far, um, you know, so I think the biggest thing that has changed is that the acceptance of doing things in the sort of modern way of building uh, technology products has really risen dramatically. It used to be that, you know, when you talked about hosting things in the cloud or using a software as a service product uh, or doing continuous integration, continuous deployment, you were kind of looked at like, what are you talking about? That's, you know, that's a bad idea. It's not secure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I feel like you're not hearing those same arguments anymore. Uh, now the question is all about, um, yes, that's how we need to do it. How do we do it? Uh, you know, how can we how can we train our people to do it? How can we do acquisition smarter to do it? Um, so I think just you know, at first there was a lot of resistance to some of the ideas that we we talked about in the digital services playbook, and now there's um, doesn't seem to be resistance. It's more like everyone's trying to figure out how can we actually uh, adapt to use these techniques. And kind of going back um, a little bit, did you face any sort of cultural shifts or challenges when you made the switch from industry to government, especially in the tech field? Because I'm sure tech was a little bit more advanced in the private sector. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think any any big organization has a lot of similar challenges. Um, any any big organization has bureaucracy, uh, which is true of government or or private sector. Um, but I think just the sheer size of government is is overwhelming, and it it can be challenging to figure out how to make a make an impact in a place so big. Um, and so I think you know that's something that I have learned how to get better at. And I think just as a, a civic tech movement, we've all kind of learned to get more effective at. Um, but certainly that was one of the biggest challenges, you know, stepping in as an innovation fellow into the, the Department of Energy, which is where my assignment was. Oh, wow. You know, trying to just kind of make sense of this place and it's such a big place and trying to figure out, you know, what's one thing that I can do for a year that will make a difference here can be challenging. And from from then, did you go from being a, as an innovation fellow to helping build USDS? Yeah, that's right. So uh, it was about halfway through my fellowship when the healthcare.gov site launched mm-hmm. and uh, initially failed and then was rescued by the the team that kind of went in and um, tried to stand the service back up. And coming back from the rescue effort, basically there was a lot of uh, momentum around this idea that the government should have teams like the team that fixed healthcare.gov in more places in the government. Uh, so it gave momentum to ideas that uh, people like Jen Palka and Todd mm-hmm. Park had been pushing um, even before healthcare.gov. But um, when when they came back, uh, basically the ask was, how do we how do we prevent the next healthcare.gov? How do we make it so that there are teams like this available um, on more of the government's most important projects? 
And so I moved over to Todd Park's office in the uh, CTO's office at the White House to help um, Jen start up the U.S. Digital Service. Uh, so I was there for about six months, um, sort of working with a bunch of people to help start the U.S. Digital Service and then moved over to work for the Digital Service once we got it up off the ground in 2014. Wow. What was that like, the early days of USDS? <laughs> well, it was, uh, you know, definitely we we knew we had this proof point that um, this model of sending uh, multidisciplinary technical teams into uh, big, important problems could have a big difference. Um, and so we, we sort of had a template, which was the healthcare.gov rescue effort. Mm -hmm. And... I guess the the first thing we had to figure out is would would anyone even join this? You know, we had this idea that you know we maybe would hire ten people, and could we even convince ten technologists to come to come do this thing? That was the the hardest part at first, uh, especially you know as we were just standing it up and there really wasn't a, whole, a team yet. Mm -hmm. um, but we had a really fantastic group of people in uh, the White House that were working on that. Did you work with Marcy Jacobs? Yeah, so Marcy joined the digital service. Uh, I'd have to look up the exact year, but a, a, maybe a year or two after we started mm -hmm. it up. Um, so yeah, yeah, I remember uh, when Marcy was. We were trying to recruit Marcy, so I remember, yeah. uh, you know, her walking around our uh, our offices, trying to get a feel for you know what was this digital service thing. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people had that reaction when when they first walked in the doors. You know, it, it has this weird it has this weird feel of being like a startup. Like you walk in the doors and you recognize that there's. Um, cool stuff all over the walls and people sitting on couches and laptops all over the place. But it's also in this strange government building. Um, so people can immediately tell that something's different. Yeah, we interviewed her on GovCast um, a few episodes ago, and she talked about her initial me uh, meeting with Todd Park and breakfast at the White House when she was joining. So it's just fun to draw those connections. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the interesting things in my, my journey is that I wound up actually for about a year working basically exclusively on hiring, which I had never done any sort of hiring activity before. But mm -hmm. it became pretty clear pretty early in the digital service that our initial expectations that it would be hard to get 10 people were wrong and that actually there was a, a lot of demand in the tech industry for uh, public service opportunities that would give them a lot of impact. And so our challenge suddenly went from, you know, can we convince anyone to join to suddenly, you know, there's 3000 applications, and we've got to figure out how to build a hiring process from scratch that will result in really great people uh, joining. And we know that we're competing against, you know, Google and Facebook okay. and Apple that have not only, you know, much higher compensation, but also can make hiring decisions really, really quickly. So um, we one of the things I worked on was helping build the process that would get candidates through the door quickly uh, and in a way that would allow them to feel comfortable that they could take this big risk to join this this startup in government. So that was a that was a fun time. I probably you know one of the most impactful things I've done uh, is is having those conversations with people like Marcy and, mm -hmm. and trying to convince them to take this leap. Uh, and we were we were ultimately successful in bringing in um, over 200 people in those first couple of years of the digital service, wow. which I'm really proud of. Yeah, there must be a way to help other agencies, or I'm sure maybe you use these practices now, um, attract this kind of IT talent, because it's still hiring the proper skilled IT talent in government is it's still a challenge right now. So Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of it is kind of common sense. You know, mm -hmm. if you look at a, a private sector company, a lot of energy every, every day is spent on recruiting and hiring. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think... You know, there's a couple things that we've proved to be successful that I think are broadly applicable. 
Uh, one is doing active recruiting. So you, you can't just post a job announcement and hope that the right people are going to apply. You need to convince them to apply. And mm-hmm. that's I think that's true probably of every job series, but that's especially true for technology where uh, it's a very competitive market. So going to places where the people you want to apply are and telling them about your job and why it's exciting and why they might want to consider it, that's, that's an important first step. And you want to make sure that you get them to actually apply because those mm-hmm. people are not just you know surfing USA jobs hoping to see a post that's interesting to them uh, so that's that's one thing and then uh, the, the second thing is really just the time I think um, people often wind up submitting an application and then it's kind of like a black box where you just wait for months and yeah. you maybe never hear anything and um, what we found in in the digital service was that even if even if all you did was every week or, or two weeks, you you checked in with them and said, hey, just wanted to let you know we've got your application. We're still working on it. No news yet. But don't you know, don't worry. We haven't forgotten about you. Even just that every two weeks mm-hmm. was enough to keep people feeling like, you know, this isn't just a faceless uh, black hole. And I'm who knows. It, it gave them a sense that there was somebody on the other end of it. Um, so, you know, those two things alone, just telling people to apply to good jobs and then once they do apply, telling them, you know, even if it's going to take another three months, just telling right. them that and staying in touch with them. Um, those are pretty simple things that I think most most hiring managers could do. That's so important. I wanted to jump back really quick and ask if there was anything, anything really memorable, crazy, exciting that you worked on at DOE when you were an innovation fellow that you can talk about? Yeah. You know, I'm trying to think of like a good story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the project that I was working on there was basically helping implement the open data policy at Department of Energy. So making it easier for uh, outside entities to get access to the data uh, and services that DOE had created. Um, and so we we tried a variety of techniques, you know, publishing new APIs, publishing descriptions of the data sets. Uh, and then we, we even ran a, a hackathon. So I think, you know, convincing the people that were in charge of protecting the nuclear weapons that we were going to do a thing called a hackathon was, yeah. was probably a little bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think we actually wound up calling it like a data challenge instead of a hackathon. So uh, maybe they won that battle. That's funny. Was it citizen facing? Anyone was allowed to? Well, uh, anyone, yeah, but... yeah, yeah. And, you know, the goal was basically try to... Um, Department of Energy and its labs had created a lot of really interesting data sets, mm-hmm. uh, especially around energy efficiency. Um, one example was the, uh, there's a model that will basically kind of predict uh, how effective a solar panel would be given where you live on the globe and also the angle of the roof and all these other factors. Uh, and so that model is, you know, this crazy model that's been built in the national lab. But to actually make that useful, we needed to find ways to expose that model to mm-hmm. entrepreneurs that could build it into a product like uh, like Zillow or you know something custom that would help uh, a solar engineer kind of go to a house and and quickly come up with an estimate. So it was a lot of uh, focus on how do we take these tools that DOE had invested in and get them into the hands of uh, the American business community that could then use them to deliver cool and innovative services to people. Uh, more relating to your current position. You served as a senior advisor to the U.S. CTO. Right. So how how does that experience kind of bleed into your current role as the CTO of a department as large as the VA? That's an interesting question. I think the role of the U.S. CTO is is pretty different than the role of a CTO at an agency mm-hmm. um, in the way that they have the CTO role established at the White House. Um, the portfolio is pretty broad, but a lot of a lot of what the role is, is looking at how technology trends are going to impact the country as a whole and what, if any, government response we need to those trends. So mm-hmm. 
things like AI and its impact on jobs uh, would be a topic that the U.S. CTO's office might investigate. Um, at a department, the, the role of the CTO is really um, to try to complement the, the IT teams and provide uh, sort of technical leadership and technical vision on some of the top priorities. Uh, so I see the role um, being, especially in, in today's landscape in federal agencies, being a little bit more focused on implementation and, and trying to make sure that the uh, agencies are adopting some of these current modern best practices in a way that is uh, safe and scalable and, uh, and effective. So what are you currently working on? What's your top priority at VA right now? Yeah, it's a great question. I I wind up getting pulled in a lot of directions, but um, the the past year, I spent a lot of time leading our digital modernization initiative, which resulted in the, the relaunch of the VA.gov homepage. Um, and basically, our goal is to make VA have the, um, the best customer-facing experience of any agency in the federal government. And I think the, the VA.gov relaunch was a, a big milestone along that path. And I think a lot of my focus this year is going to be taking the lessons that we learned from the VA.gov project that our digital service team at VA has kind of pioneered at the VA and try to scale those practices to more parts of VA. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we've made a, a couple of really exciting moves recently that are going to make it easier for the VA to adopt some of these modern concepts, uh, like DevOps is, is one of those words you'll hear a lot about, but basically trying to make... Uh, teams more responsible for owning every aspect of a, of a given service, both the development and the operation and the maintenance and the support, uh, kind of all all one team responsible for everything. We're going to try to roll that philosophy out to more projects at the VA using a more modern tool set and a, a more agile and uh, user-centered style of delivering pr- projects. What are the greatest challenges you're finding with that that initiative? I think implementing anything new often requires uh, changes to kind of three big categories of things, the the people, the processes, and the tools. And um, so really across all three of those those lanes, we need to make big improvements. Mm-hmm. But I think um, probably it starts with the people. You know, we've got to find ways, I think, in government to empower people to um, do, do the right thing more easily. Uh, I think that's something that a lot of us became really struck by in the digital services, just the quality of the people that work in the federal government is amazing. Uh, and oftentimes the, the missing ingredient is uh, basically empowering somebody that knows what the right thing to do is. Um, the, the missing ingredient is just letting them do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and people will kind of, after so many years of working in the system, will kind of get in, they'll get used to this idea that, you know, the system is what it is and you have to just follow it. And that's, that's all there is to it. Um, and so finding ways to kind of break that mentality and make people kind of understand and realize that the system is just, you know, was just made by people. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it can be changed by people, but you just have to kind of empower people to do that. Um, so that's that's one of the biggest challenges is, is taking our people and empowering them to do stuff uh, faster and, and do the right thing. Because mm-hmm. oftentimes the right thing is is pretty obvious to everyone, but instead we just kind of do the, the standard thing because that's like the rules or something. Yeah. Um, but if you ask someone, well, where does it say you have to do that? No one can really point you to where it says that. It's just kind of the way that we've always done it. Um, so um, I think if we just followed common sense, uh, we'd, we'd probably be a little bit better off in most categories of things. It's so cool because we've interviewed a few people from USDS on GovCast um, in all departments, DHS, HHS, uh, VA. And this this philosophy seems to be a trend. Um, so it's really cool to see 
the type of people that come into USDS kind of have a, a similar mindset when it comes to working on these citizen-facing services and, and modernization projects in government. It's it's a bit different, so it's refreshing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's um, to give an example. There's a there's a really cool project that came out of the VA, um, our Loma Linda Medical Center. Um, one of the administrators of that hospital in his spare time volunteers for the local search and rescue group. And for his search and rescue group, he had built on the side this little text message um, tool that would, when there was a search um, needed, volunteers needed for a search, it would text every member of the search and rescue team. And when he got back to work, you know, they were talking a lot about how missed appointments was this big problem that Loma Linda was facing. And it sort of occurred to him, you know, that same thing that I built for my search and rescue group to get text messages out and see, you know, who's available to come. We could just use that for the VA. We could text veterans and remind them when they have an appointment. They could even reply back and say, no, I can't make it or yes, I can make it. And so he basically just did it. He got a small team together at Loma Linda um, and built this service that notified veterans proactively that they had an appointment upcoming. And that that text message uh, tool was effective at reducing missed appointments in Loma Linda uh, pretty dramatically, had a big impact. Uh, other medical centers started hearing about it and asking if they could help them set it up. And so it spread uh, sort of organically for a year or two. And then um, last year, we sort of heard about it uh, at headquarters and through a partnership with the health administration and my office, we helped scale that project nationwide. And so now, you know, veterans receive a text message uh, appointment reminder if if they want to, they receive that text message, and uh, that's been successful at reducing missed appointments. I think the latest numbers I saw was that it has reduced over a hundred thousand missed appointments since that oh, went wow. nationwide. Uh, and so that's a great example of you know that wasn't like some brilliant idea that came out of some somebody in Washington, right? That came from the field and just a small group of people had the skills to put it together. Mm -hmm. um, and there's people like that all over the government. We just need to make them more feel more empowered to do it. Yeah, and I asked Marcy this uh, because, as well, because I think the VA is such an impactful organization. It really does. I mean, it's the largest healthcare yeah. organization in the country. Um, so, what has been the most rewarding part of your job at VA so far? I think by far the you know the the thing that is awesome about working for the VA is the scale of the impact you can have. You know, when you when you work on a product at the VA and it launches nationwide you know, that impacts millions of people. Um, and so the text message, you know, appointment reminder is a great example. Um, just the the sheer scale of the, um, the sheer scale at which we operate gives you the chance to work on products that are going to touch a lot of people and touch them in a really impactful way. And compared to a lot of the stuff that I was working on in the tech uh, industry, mm -hmm. uh, the both the size of the impact and also the amount of the impact is not even comparable. Um, you know, I think back to like, I was spending a lot of time working on this uh, live music discovery tool, um, which was like a cool idea, but at the end of the day, it didn't really matter. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it helps people find a concert they might want to see. Uh, and I think if you look at Silicon Valley, there's a lot of, a lot of work going into products like that, which are kind of cool consumer products that kind of help, People that are already pretty well off have like a slightly better life. You know, they can they can more easily order a dog walker, um, which is awesome, you know, and it helps the dog walker get a job or whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know. I, I feel like the country has a lot more important problems to work on than helping book dog walkers. And there's a lot of money going to problems like that right now and a lot of talent. And uh, that's why I think building avenues for 
people in the tech industry to come do public service really at any level is so important. Um, that's one of the things I'm most proud about the digital services that I feel like we've we've started to try to build this tradition of public service in the tech industry, which is is kind of unique among the professions in not having that tradition. You know, if you think of um, the law or um, medicine or science, you know, a lot of the most prestigious jobs in those fields involve federal government services in some way. You know, think of clerking for the Supreme Court is basically the most prestigious thing you can do out of law school. Uh, it's only for the best. There's no equivalent to that for a software engineer. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's almost the opposite. If a software engineer spent a couple of years at the VA, um, you know, I think until very recently, people would be like, well, that's kind of strange. I wonder if that person's any good, right? Mm -hmm. And that's that's crazy. Uh, so we need to change that. Um, and we can change that on the government side by giving people with those skills the opportunity to come and have a really, uh, have a really big impact. And also, I think we need to change on the tech side. Um, you know, people need to realize that public service is important and that every I think every good technologist should try to spend part of their career doing public service. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think that, you know, only years ago, roles like chief data officers, chief technology officers didn't exist. And now those are the people in government that are making the changes that citizens actually see. It's hard to see the changes that your government is making just for you. Um, so if a vet were to ask you, you know, how are you making working to make my life easier. How would you respond to that? Well, probably the most visible thing is just the the tools that were the tools that VA is providing veterans to interact with the VA um, on VA.gov are higher quality, more more stable than than in the past. And so we're trying to make it easier for people to interact with the VA online. Mm -hmm. Just like, you know, somebody could interact with their bank or their insurance company um, sort of easily using using website. Um, we're trying to make the VA experience much more like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also a lot of work behind the scenes that are probably not going to be as visible to veterans. But, you know, when they when they do submit a form to the VA, you know, kind of what happens after that, there's also a lot of work that we're doing on that side of things that um, even if the impact is not quite as visible, uh, the result is going to be faster services, uh, you know, more efficient services. Um, and I did want to ask you about your music app. So did you have an interest in... Did you love to go see live music? Uh, is that what kind of drove you to build an app like this? It's called yeah. Preamp. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I always music has always been sort of a passion of mine, mm -hmm. um, and it was just kind of a an idea that a friend of I, a friend and I had come up with uh, a few years ago in Boston, and sort of hacked on together for a little while, and then decided to kind of actually spend some time to build out the, the whole idea. And um, so I was sort of working on that actually when I got the call that I had received the innovation fellowship. So I had this, oh, this nice. kind of interesting like dilemma, you know, do I continue to work on this, this kind of cool product idea that I have? Uh, or should I take the fellowship? And, you know, I decided I couldn't pass up the fellowship. It was mm -hmm. such a unique opportunity. Um, but it was a little bittersweet. I think like the the day before I started my fellowship or something like that, the uh, TechCrunch covered preamp and said it was oh, no. awesome, and uh, they were so excited about it. And I was like, oh man, well. But I'm I'm you know really glad you know in retrospect I think it it worked out pretty well. So was it just two of you building the app? Yeah, you know mostly mostly me and then some friends uh, contributed here and there. Is it the way you see in in like shows like Silicon Valley where people are just sitting in a room with a bunch of computers and? in your sweats and sneakers and <laughs> you're just 
yeah yeah basically i you know we we didn't have an office space or anything like that um so worked out of a co-working space and uh, a lot of just you know collaborating on chat and Mm -hmm. uh, posting code on github and um yeah you know building i think the experience of building stuff like that you know really showed me that in the modern way of building software you know it doesn't take a lot of people or money to to create something Mm -hmm. and um a lot of the software the government builds is is really not that complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, don't get me wrong. We do have really complicated software problems, you know, like guided missiles and the space shuttle and things like that. But when we're talking about just like a database-backed web application, that's not a complicated problem. That's mm-hmm. a very solved problem in industry. Uh, we make it complicated by making all these crazy requirements and and then hiring, you know, missile defense companies to build database-backed web apps. Mm-hmm. Um I almost have this. Uh, I almost think that sometimes our projects fail because they're big. Um, like if you have a hundred people all trying to work on one relatively simple piece of software, it's going to have to be complicated because there's no other way you can organize a hundred people. Mm-hmm. But if you had to, if you assigned like ten people to try to do that same job, I think a lot of times you'd get uh, a higher quality product at the end of it. Um, so we're trying to implement some of those lessons at the VA. And it's people who create these citizen consumer apps, like finding a dog walker, finding a concert near you, um, those practices that lead to the best practices in government to build these kinds of services. So people who come from industry and bring their knowledge and experience to government, that's so important. Because uh, I was going to ask you, you know, what government can learn from industry in terms of building citizen-facing web applications, redesigning websites, usability, user design. Um, so it sounds like you brought lots of those practices with you. One thing that often happens is this stuff gets bucketed in this category of innovation, and I really strongly react. Ne- <laughs> I really react negatively to that. I think that um, in a lot of cases we don't really need innovation to build web applications correctly. Um, there's kind of like a, a new good way to build web applications, and it's pretty well understood. And we just need to follow those rules. Mm-hmm. It's it's not like a, we need to adopt some crazy new, you know, AI blockchain. Um, set of set of technologies um, building a database backed web app is pretty straightforward so we just need to do it correctly and it's not it's not innovative right because i i remember how i heard you speak at the fed health it 100 and you talked about the difference between innovative and execution innovation right. and execution um, and building a website should be execution but it's not necessarily innovative exactly uh and that's not to say we don't need innovation. Mm-hmm. There is a ton of actually great innovation happening today in the federal government. You know, literally the federal government is curing diseases and is building spaceships, right? So there is amazing innovation happening, uh, but you don't need innovation to build a web application. That's that's actually, you need the opposite of that. You just need to take the current best practices that industry is, has kind of figured out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of these are open source and they're, um, they're very easy to implement. Um, and we just need to get better at following that that standard playbook. All right. So now I wanted to ask a few questions about what you do outside of your time in government. Um, is music soul passion of yours or any, <laughs> any hobbies in D.C. that you've picked up since? Yeah, well, we here? have a two-year-old now, so we have you know less time for all sorts of hobbies, I would say. <laughs> sure. But yeah, I still really enjoy traveling. Um, we brought our, our uh, daughter to Paris this summer um, and my wife. Uh, and I really like traveling, so that's been really exciting. And then uh, we also both really enjoy running and working out, mm-hmm. so doing a lot of that. Um, 
So self-health and travel are still possible when you have a child. Good to know. (laughs) It's possible. So if you were to kind of summarize how your experiences at Harvard eventually led you to this path down industry, government, et cetera, how would you, you know, in technology from this interest in music and, and production, how would you summarize that? Yeah, that's a good question. I I don't know that there is a a big lesson there. I think Mm -hmm. just being open to new experiences and kind of um, certainly I couldn't have predicted this path, um, but just kind of being open and going where opportunities take you Mm -hmm. is is really important. And I guess the other kind of really important lesson that I think I've learned is that the, um, you know, when you find good bosses or good leaders, um, those are those are rare, so stick with them, mm-hmm. um, and and then try to pay it forward. You know, try to bring more people along. Um, so I've been really lucky to work with people like Jen Palka and Todd Park and Nick Sinai and uh, Mikey Dickerson and the the whole crew. Um, you know, the people that we've worked with on this civic tech movement over the past six years are such incredible humans, uh, and so that's been the best part of this journey. And so it's never. It's never felt like a good time to step away from it, mostly because the people are just so incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I spent a lot of time thinking about how do we get more people into this family and keep keep growing, uh, growing the civic tech movement. So what's next for you? I don't want to say after VA. You're obviously still here. Um, but do you think you'll continue to find ways, regardless of, of where your path takes you, to innovate government or citizen services, the nation, um, whether that's in, in government or industry? There's this saying in digital service uh, that we are sort of like impact junkies, and I, I think I have gotten that bug. So I, I think that I'm going to be continuing to look for uh, opportunities to have a really big impact. Um, I don't totally know all the different ways in which that could play out, um, but I think this whole experience has kind of taught me that there isn't uh, there isn't some like secret group of people that have everything figured out and they're you know they're really in charge and we're just you know working our jobs you know there mm-hmm. there is no secret group of people this is just a bunch of people trying their best um, and that's probably true of literally everything in the world so uh, I think uh, I'll be looking for opportunities to just be one of those people working on something really cool. And any words of advice for students in school growing up right now with technology literally at their fingertips since birth uh, to bring that expertise to the public service? My advice is really more for the federal government to become better at uh, hiring people like that Mm -hmm. um, because we need to create pathways for people with those skills to uh, start careers in public service and have that be a viable option. Um, And right now that's, that's a really difficult challenge for a lot of people in that situation. So I think my honestly, my best advice would be to uh, go try to work in industry um, and kind of learn the skills see how it works in the real world, and then uh, look for opportunities to bring those to government. Um, I also, I don't know, this is probably not super related, but the, you know, there's a whole group of federal government contractors. um, And I would love to see the federal government contractor community do more rotations of their staff in and out of the federal practices. I, I think that the challenges the VA faces are more like um, you know, a hospital system or an insurance company than they are like um, the FDA or um, the IRS or things like that. So getting getting more rotation, a lot of these companies do work both with the big Fortune 500s and, and the big federal government, but the practices are so segregated. And I think over years, you know, if you work in the federal government consulting practice, you just kind of learn that that's how it is in the federal government. Mm-hmm. And we don't get as much cross-pollination that way either. So I think 
getting people with skills in the private sector coming into public service is important. And also for the people that are doing contract work for the federal government, just rotating them across different types of uh, companies so that they're not all just federal government only or public public sector only, or Mm -hmm. sorry, private sector only could be helpful. And everyone brings their own perspective. There's no way one person can know all of the struggles that veterans are having with the digital services that they provide. It's like countrywide. So how do you know who, who how somebody in, you know, out west is struggling with their own VA medical services online? People from all over the country can have their own struggles and if somebody from a from industry in a certain area knows those particular struggles well, they can bring those challenges in and try to fix them. That's right. I think one of the most important uh, tactics to making better government services really starts with uh, understanding who the people are that use the services. Uh, you know, I think you know, play number one in the digital services playbook is understand what people need. And I think that design muscle is, is one of the actually most missing things in government. And it, it really pains me to see the industry kind of talking all about AI and blockchain and these new technologies while still people today are using systems that literally had never had a designer look at them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're talking now about using AI to automate them. It's crazy to me. Like if we just hired a couple designers and had them right. sit and look at just the way people are doing their jobs day in and day out and make a few tweaks, I'm convinced that that would save way more money than any uh, new tool that we're going to buy from the same vendors that got us into this mess. So execute first and then innovate <laughs> in this sense. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not, you know, I, we do need innovation. And I wish that like, actually, I think in a more like well-functioning government, the role of the CTO would be all about that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right now the role is, you know, bring us up to today's standard. Right. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Really yeah, appreciate thanks for having it. Me. That was a great interview with Charles. I think he touched on some really valuable points, like um, how they set up USDS and all of that in the early stages. Yeah, I think it's so cool what he said about USDSers being impact junkies. Based on our previous GovCast episodes in season one, with members of USDS from VA, DHS, HHS, I think it really perfectly describes the mentality and mindset that this team brings to government. I also think he brought up really good points about hiring and the workforce in government. Exactly. Like when he mentioned you need to empower your workforce before you can even innovate anything. I thought that was a really valuable point that I think a lot of people sometimes forget in this day and age of, you know, AI and bots and all those magic words that we hear all the time. Yeah, and I think government already has a hard enough time retaining talent, considering they can't compete with the salaries that industry is able to provide for IT talent specifically. So what he said about making sure to follow up with applicants and making them feel like their resume just didn't go into a black hole and disappear, following up and letting them know the process might take longer might help to keep them interested um, and, and not get discouraged from applying to government. It's also important to know about the new VA.gov, something that Charles and his team worked on And we also covered in season one of GovCast with Marcy Jacobs, who's with the digital service team at VA. The new site's backend is planned to be almost like a portfolio or a platform for vets so they can see their medical appointments and and benefits and documents, almost a feature that consumers demand because they're used to that in their apps and websites today. So that's that's really important to note. I hope that that evolves and, and users start to really benefit from those services. It's the perfect example of the idea that you don't need to come from a government background in order to do really cool things in government. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. It's produced and edited by Amy Kluber. 
Our theme music is provided by Big Hoax. Our executive producer is Michael Hoffman. If you're interested in sponsoring GovCast, you can email Joseph O'Neill at J-O-N-E-I-L-L at governmentcio.com.